The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is out on assignment. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. A new bill introduced in the House could ban reverse auctions for design and construction contracts. The Construction Consensus Procurement Improvement Act is meant to stop agencies from prioritizing low prices over qualifications. GovExec reports the bipartisan bill in the House mirrors one the Senate passed late last year. The Defense Department's Chief Information Officer wants to clarify what's defined as an endpoint in terms of cybersecurity. The Software Supply Chain Assurance Forum met last week. NextGov reports one official at the forum said a discussion of terminology is, quote, much needed. Sylvia Burns is the new Chief Information Officer at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. She previously served as Deputy CIO at FDIC for the past two years. Federal News Network reports she has also served as CIO at the Department of the Interior. Army Chief of Staff General James McConville says the service has to embrace innovation and change. He spoke at a breakfast this morning at the National Museum of the United States Army. Are we building the Army that can compete and win for the next 40 years? I believe that only transformational change will build the Army our future demands. And that's exactly what we're doing with the development of the multi-domain operations concept. We're changing the way we're going to fight in the future and where we'll be contested in every domain. Most people will have census employees knocking on their doors sometime in April. In places like Tuxuk Bay, Alaska, however, the census needs to start early because the frozen ground now makes it easier for census workers to travel. Joining us via satellite from Alaska, Timothy Olson is Associate Director for Field Operations at the Census Bureau. Thanks for being here. What, what's changed between this, um, this uh, census Marjorie, and the last one? thank you for having us. Thank you. Um, what, what's changed between the last census well, and this one? Well, the big difference in 2020. Yeah, the big difference is that uh, in 2020, people throughout the nation will be able to respond online, over the phone, or with the paper questionnaire. Uh, in past censuses, everything was paper. Uh, so this is a, a huge improvement. And folks ought to realize that the census is so important. It's going to affect how we're represented. Uh, as well as how billions and billions of dollars are allocated to local communities uh, for schools, roads, bridges, emergency services, you name it. It's going to affect our lives literally for the next decade. And let's uh, talk about these hard to reach places. What is the Census um, Bureau doing to make sure you get to these people? So in rural Alaska, uh, we are going to every village uh, to conduct the actual enumeration we're starting today in Tuksuk Bay, which is on the Bering Sea, and we will work our way through the entire uh, areas of rural Alaska uh, starting today through uh, the month of April. But for the rest of the country, uh, including the urbanized parts of, of Alaska, Anchorage and Fairbanks and Juneau, um, everybody is back on the regular schedule. So middle of March, is when people will receive their invitations to self-respond to the census. Um, as I said earlier, they can go online, over the phone, or with a paper form. They can do it in up to 13 languages. And uh, it's so important 
that people respond and include everybody living in their household. Uh, young children, relatives, non-family members, everybody in their household. Um, thank you. And with just about 30 seconds to, to go, um, you know, are you expecting that this, this kind of new, more modern approach will reach a lot more people? Do you think this will be um, more effective? Yeah, it's going to be so much easier for people to participate in the census than in, in prior censuses. This is my fourth census. And I got to tell you, the ability for the population to self-respond uh, at their convenience in the language they're comfortable with, uh, online or over the phone or the paper form. It really is an amazing improvement. Thank you so much. You can see more of our census coverage on govmatters.tv. Up next, the government is turning to an unusual evalu evaluation method in some procurements. Straight ahead on Government Matters, taking a look at the self-scoring trend. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. Five companies have pre-award protests pending over the FBI's IT supplies and support services contract. All five were eliminated based on scoring they completed themselves. Nick Wakeman is editor of Washington Technology. Thanks for being here, Nick. Thanks. Glad to be here. Let's talk about self-scoring and, and um, how this trend has kind of emerged in the government. Where did you see it first? Well, it started with the, the, the OASIS contract, that large uh, professional services contract that General Services Administration has. And that was the first one, and I think it's just kind of grown from there, especially for these really big IDIQ contracts. I think it's a way for uh, the agency, in this case the FBI, to kind of, you know, eliminate, you know, because you're going to have a tremendous number of bidders, and so it's a way to kind of take that first round and eliminate people out. Is so. the idea to, to kind of save government resources in terms of time I, I, and money? I think so. It's a way for them to... Yeah. It's kind of odd the way they work because it's, it's self-scoring primarily around uh, past performance. There's a lot of questions from contract to contract on what counts as, as past performance and what doesn't, and who's you know can you count your teammates? Is your small business? You know, so we see a lot of uh, joint ventures forming so they can kind of pool their mm -hmm. past performance. And what the agency does, the agency says, okay, we're going to take the top 30 scores. They don't tell you what you know. There's no true cutoff so you do kind of do your best and then if, if it's not there like that ah, you're gone and they don't even have to even look at your proposal they just kind of look at your score and you're eliminated so I, I think a lot of people would assume that industry would like to do self-scoring but it sounds like uh, it actually isn't necessarily something that that uh, works in their best interest well in, in I, that's true I think for like large companies because they have so much past performance it does but when you get down to these mid-tier and smaller companies, I think it can work against them. And how does it uh, complicate or change the protest process? That's a great question, because some of these are really hard, from what I've been told, for them to win. So I think sometimes they, they put these protests in hoping that in the process of going through the, the protests, they find other mistakes the agency may have made, or the agency's like, oh, you know, maybe we should have considered this. but. Uh, so these companies, I think, are trying to get back in. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know the details on what they say is unfair about their particular scores, but we'll be, we'll be watching that. It sounds like, though, from where you sit, you think protests in these kinds of um, procurements 
are a little bit of a long shot. Yes, yeah, I do. And do you think that the experience that these companies and that the agencies have had with um, self-scoring and with these protests make them more likely to use it? I mean, is this a trend you see kind of gaining speed? I, I think so, especially for the large, for the large uh, contract vehicles, because they are going to get so many bidders. You know, we have these huge, you know, vehicles now, and uh, if you don't get on the, you know, the pressure's on industry to get on them. If you're not on it, you kind of can be kind of shut out or you're going to be a subcontractor to somebody. And so it's really, really important. They're going to do whatever they can to, to get on these vehicles. It sounds like they're probably going to try to figure out how to self-score at a, at a better level, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, the thing is, you self-score and then you still have to have all the documentation to back up your score. You mm -hmm. can't just say, oh, I'm going to give myself this. So they check your work, essentially. That, that, exactly. <laughs> uh, what other trends are you watching in, in government procurement? Are there other things that you're seeing kind of emerge? Well, yeah, I think, you know, it, one of the big trends that we're watching, I'm not sure whether to call it like we're in the, the third industrial revolution or fourth or fifth or whatever, but everything's really around data. And so I think that's sort of what's driving, you know, the move to the cloud, the, you know, all the as a service things. Everything is about, you know, what can we do with this data? Because agencies collect huge amounts of data. And how do they do a better job? How can they make better decisions off of it? How can they use it? So, so data is kind of driving everything as far as, like, like I said, the cloud as a service. You know, how do we exploit our data? How do we protect our data? It's all kind of around that. What are you hearing from companies are sort of the business opportunities associated with that? How can they kind of position to, to win work in that area? Well, it's, it's funny. It reminds me a little bit of after 9-11 when everybody said they did Homeland Security. Everyone now says, oh, we do data analytics, we do AI, we, you know, artificial intelligence. So there's a little bit of uh, you have to kind of look at things and say, okay, is this, is this real or is this hype, you know, and, and, and what is it? And you kind of look, I think for some companies, you look at, you know, who their partners are, especially if they're bringing in commercial companies and what those companies do, um, and then the kind of work that they're, they're winning. It, it seems like that commercial piece is almost required these days, right, that the yeah. winning companies have partnerships with some of the leading commercial companies. Do you think that that's sort of standard procedure now? I think so, I do. I, you know, when you think of, uh, you know, of course, you know, Jedi is the one everyone talks about, but you, this move to the cloud, and those agencies are turning to commercial, you know, cl cloud providers, whether it's AWS or Azure or you know, even Google and some, you know, IBM, Oracle, all those. That's a real, that's a real trend that's not going to go away. And with that comes the opportunity to bring in other, you know, commercial applications and, and, and approaches and things like that. And, and when you hear from the government, um, you know, from different agencies, what do they want from companies? What can companies be doing to, to help them, you know, get what they need? Well, you know, I kind of see that, particularly with like the traditional government contractors and the agencies, they're, they're definitely two sides of the same coin. So they have similar issues. I think uh, there's too much uh, risk aversion I think particularly on agencies and then with the, the, the traditional government contractors, I think kind of breaking through that. I think, uh, you know, the other transaction authorities, the OTAs, I think that sort of sets a model, whether it's through an OTA or, or, but that whole concept of let's do a prototype, let's prove it, let's kind of incremental things. I think that's something that, that companies should be going to their customers with saying, hey, you don't need to spend all this money. Let's do a little pilot here and then we can kind of scale it up. I think more, more that companies can develop that kind of skill and that kind of approach, the more successful they'll be.
Hmm. So you think companies should actually, uh, within themselves, kind of consider how can I help an agency buy this more quickly? Maybe oh, buy this outside absolutely. of absolutely, huh. absolutely. Yeah, they could, they can go, they should be able to go to a customer and say, hey, this is how you can get to this, uh, to this solution. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here, Nick. All right, Lakeman. thank you. Up next, filling Inspector General vacancies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the new webpage that tracks openings and how the government can fill them faster. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. A new page on Oversight.gov tracks openings in IG positions across government. The site currently lists 10 available Inspector General jobs. Robert Shea is principal at Grant Thornton Public Sector. He's a former associate director at OMB. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I see we've got a major upgrade. <laughs> uh, what do you um, think about this page? Why was it created, do you think? Well, uh, you know, the Council for Inspectors General is an organization that's only in the last decade really in, been institutionalized and they've got some resources to focus on major priorities and this is one of them you know staffing inspectors general is a really important uh, job so uh, the fact that we've got vacancies in some really big uh, agencies inspector generals for many years um, it's really important to shine a light on that do you think this site does that that it really helps kind of um, give a centralized view at, at where these vacancies are and how long they've been going on? Oh, absolutely. It shows the 10 or so positions that have been vacant for some time. It shows where they are in the process. Only a couple of them have actually gotten nominated. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it shows that there's, a, there's an obligation for the president to nominate and where those gaps are. And there's an obligation for the Senate to confirm and where those gaps are. It does a really simple job of displaying that information. And you, as you sort of hint, there's a there's a large range in terms of the time of vacancies. One of them is you know, over five years. One is just a few weeks. Um, what generally slows down these positions from getting filled or stops them from being filled? Well, uh, for, for the president to appoint an inspector general is an unnatural act. Uh, <laughs> they are... Um, you're, you're charging someone with investigating and auditing your activities and being transparent in reporting to the public and to Congress wrongdoing. Um, uh, so that's difficult as it is. Finding the right person with those skills, also very difficult. Then getting the Senate to trust that you're not putting uh, a political ally in that position is another hurdle. Those three things make it unusually difficult Nonetheless, it's an important position institutionally. There's an understanding of what kind of individual we're looking for for those positions. Um, generally, it's worked that we've been able to fill them more quickly, though not quickly, just more quickly than five, four years. Sure. Are you suggesting then that maybe sometimes agency leadership, it's, it's maybe not a top priority for them as well? Oh, it's of course not a top <laughs> priority. They're not looking for uh, additional people to farrow out um, uh, uh, you know, criminal activity, um, improper payments, um, oversee audits, that's, that is generally not going to be a high priority for agency leadership. 
So why do you think it, though, is important? It sounds like you think it's important for the outsiders, for the taxpayers, and maybe even for some of the, the workers in the agency? It really is. There's a, an important role for these independent uh, views on agency activities um, to take place. Uh, the you know, trust in government has been on the decline for many years. This position can transparently report what's going well and what's not. Um, can enlist agencies in uh, saying what they're going to do to address some systemic shortcomings in their management and performance. This is a position that uh, spans the history of our nation. Um, we're going on almost 50 years with inspectors general, a good track record of not only reporting, but finding ways to save the taxpayers billions and billions of dollars. So do you think, you know, where you have an agency where maybe it's been years or there's a vacancy, is there an obvious effect there, you think? Well, you know, I, I think about what GAO had to do recently. GAO was called on to assess the extent to which the Office of Management and Budget violated the law in withholding funds appropriated by Congress. That is a tough report to issue. Um, and GAO, to some extent, was able to do it uh, more credibly because it had a Senate-confirmed position in the Comptroller General. Other agencies are routinely called upon to investigate and issue reports on s equally sensitive matters. Maybe not equally sensitive, but really sensitive matters. <laughs> um, and, an, and, a, and a senate confirmed uh, Inspector General is just going to have uh, more clout, more credibility in issuing those kinds of reports. And you know, looking to get these positions filled, is there anything the government or people outside the government you think can do to help speed the process? Yeah, well, you know, there, there should be a ready pool of candidates, people who have auditing and investigative experience, who, um, who uh, are credible in applying for and being nominated for these jobs. The Senate committees that undertake these confirmations ought to be ready to quickly review the backgrounds of those individuals, conduct hearings if necessary on their nominations, and move them through the Senate confirmation process. And I understand um, this, this particular tracker is just one of the improvements that Oversight.gov is, is making. Um, what else are, should, you, should we, we be watching for there? Yeah, again, it, it's a great central resource for this institution, the Inspectors General. Each of these offices issues reports um, on audits and investigations they've completed. It's a great central place to go and find out what major issues are impacting individual agencies, what major issues are uh, systemic and cross all agencies. Um, there are also regular reports that some the benefits from Inspector General audits and investigations it's a, a great source for that, too. And I, I also want to turn, if we could, to the budget, which we're expecting to come out um, mid-month in That's February. Right. Um, what are you watching for there, and what should we expect, you know, given that it's uh, an election year as well? Well, I think, like past budgets during this administration, you'll see some initial austerity uh, requested. Um, but the likelihood that that austerity gets enacted um, is low. Uh, what I really focus on is a lot of the management initiatives. We're three years into the administration, several years into the president's management agenda. 
Um, I think uh, folks are mostly pleased with that framework. Um, we'll want to see what progress has been made to date uh, against some of the ambitious goals in the agenda, where investments are going to go to drive improvements in these areas even further. You know, it, it, there's, there's no year in recent memory uh, in an election year in which the budget's been enacted uh, before the election. So we're going to have some muddy waters between the end of the fiscal year, the election, and the inauguration. Uh, you know, we'll be watching where, where the majorities fall in the House and Senate to see how that budget gets resolved. Thank you so much, Robert Shea. Thanks for having me. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, you offer something called Infinity Total Protection. What does that involve? The Infinity Total Protection provides a per-user pricing model for end-to-end -end security fabric. And by this I mean your firewalls, your VPN, your IPS, but also your cloud security, your endpoint security, and your application security. What this provides is a very well-rounded uh, protective fabric that's got a single pane of glass, so it's easy to reduce your operating costs. For small to medium agencies, this is extremely valuable. It also means a predictable cost over a multi-year period, which often can save an agency 20 to 30% of their total cost investment in security. Wow, so talk about that nexus there, Jeremy, between security and operational value. What should our listeners know here? Well, as Sean mentioned, the ease of management's great, but it also provides you that full spectrum of the Checkpoint software portfolio. And this gives you a uniform security posture across your entire environment, and it keeps, we keep it up to date with the latest uh, Gen 5 advanced threat protection. Hmm. So what about endpoints, Sean? How does this affect or impact visibility? Yeah, at the endpoints where your users sit is often the first point of attack. Having the protective fabric, the sandboxing on a phone or an endpoint, allows this fabric to discover zero-day attacks extremely quickly in an endpoint sandbox, explode those devices, find those first-day attacks or zero-day attacks, feed them into a threat intelligence cloud, and then inform the rest of the fabric in near real-time. What this means is a small-to-meet agency can have an attack identified intelligently at the edge and then notified and updating the whole fabric as a community, so a much more proactive approach. Great info, Sean, Jeremy, thanks again for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson.
Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.